This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Jessamine Abel about her book, Dream Super Express, A Cultural History of the World's First Bullet Train, which is out from Stanford University Press in 2022. Dream Super Express is a history of Japan's famous Super Express, the so-called Shinkansen, and the accompanying bullet train imaginary. In other words, it's both a history of infrastructure and mobility on the one hand, and a cultural and social history of the ways that the train was planned, interpreted, and built up as a symbol of a new Japan both at home and in the world on the other. The bullet train transformed the speed and the volume of the flows of information and people across Japan, and in doing so became the embodiment of a dawning information society and a national brand for Japan. But it was also an agent of destruction for communities in its way, a source of anxiety for artists and activists and others and an object of nostalgia for those who connected it to Japan's imperial past. While triumphalism eventually became hegemonic in public narratives about the Shinkansen, Abel unearths the tensions, conflicts, and concerns often drowned out in the monumentalization of the bullet train as Japan's dream super express. Okay, so Dr. Abel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, So as you probably know by now, uh, we always start out by asking our authors how they became interested in this project. So I'd love to know um, how you became interested in uh, the topic of infrastructure and specifically uh, the Shinkansen, the Dream Super Express. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. Uh, Great to talk about my book. And also, please call me Jess. Um, I got interested in this topic, actually, when I was writing my first book, which had a chapter on the 1964 Olympics. And as I was reading that, uh, all the materials about the 1964 Olympics, the bullet train, which opened right before the opening ceremony of the Olympics, um, kept coming up in the news, in various materials that I was reading, and people were sort of breathlessly excited about it. And I wondered why, in a time when really uh, uh, most of the world was moving away from rail, um, in Japan as well, there were uh, the government was 
expanding air travel. They were even getting into space exploration. Why were people so excited about a train? Uh, and so in that first book, um, the bullet train just made a very brief mention, but I was still really curious about that question. What, what were people all excited about? So I, I wanted to know more about that. And that's how I started studying the bullet train. Yeah. So that's interesting because that's interesting because I guess for me, it was one of those things I had always just sort of accepted as, well, of course they were excited. It's the bullet train, but it actually <laughs> turns out to be a really interesting question, right? And so um, for, for our listeners, I want to jump into uh, the introduction and conclusion here to sort of frame things a bit before we get into the chapters. Um, so this is a book about the the bullet train, uh, sometimes called the Shinkansen, also the Super Express. Um, and your book's more or less about why it becomes such a, a meaningful cultural icon, right? As we've already been talking about, and it's this focus of national and, and to some extent international attention and energy. Um, so as far as I can tell, the central organizing question of the book is how this ostensibly utilitarian transport uh, infrastructure project becomes this aesthetic national cultural icon. Um, and, and I was really interested, this is a process that you refer to as monumentalization. So I want to I want to talk about that. Um, and you're also interested in the contested sort of multivocal history and composition of what you call the bullet train imaginary, sort of like the social imaginary of the bullet train, I guess. Um, in other words, how the train has polarized and united people, um, how it's played different roles in Japan's uh, both internal and external politics. And obviously, we'll get into a lot of that in the chapters. Um, but to start out here, can you give us some background on the history of trains um, and the bullet train in particular in Japan? Uh, and also, I want to see if we can think about why it's important to study infrastructure projects, right, um, as cultural objects, not just as sort of um, built environment or infrastructure. In other words, what's revealed by using this sort of flashy, high-tech infrastructure like the bullet train uh, as the material and cultural object of research? And if there are any, what are the pitfalls and dangers that you found as you were doing this project? Okay, well, that's a, a big question. So let me start with the first part, um, uh, uh, just nutshell history of trains uh, in Japan, up to the, the opening of the bullet train, I guess. Um, and it begins with the Meiji reforms. Um, part of building an industrial capitalist economy was to build the required transportation infrastructure for that. And the government really focused on that Tokaido route uh, between Tokyo and Osaka. Private companies built railways elsewhere. Um, but all of them were narrow gauge, which means the, tr the tracks were a little bit closer together than uh, so-called standard gauge, which was standard in the other industrialized countries of the world. Um, that was a decision that railway leaders and many political leaders uh, almost immediately regretted because it limits the speed of the trains. And so as the economy developed, and especially as the military developed and the empire developed, uh, many Japanese leaders wanted the trains to go faster, and they couldn't do that safely with the, with the narrow gauge. Um, so efforts to build standard gauge railways uh, kind of uh, rose and and then got defeated uh, because of the expense and various other aspects. Many people were opposed to kind of refitting the entire railway system um, until finally during the war, during World War II, that sort of um, the exigencies of both war and empire finally pushed for a government approval of 
one high-speed rail system um, from Tokyo to Shimonoseki uh, that was approved and they started building it. I think we'll talk about this later. It, it was um, suspended, construction was suspended in 1943. Um, but in the view of both uh, JNR officials and the general public, that goal of building high-speed rail that was held for so many years and promoted and almost realized uh, during the war was finally realized in 1964 with the Tokaido Shinkansen. Uh, and it's for that reason that was, that's one of the reasons that the press labeled it the, the Yume no Cho Tokyo, the Dream Super Express, which is the source of the, the book's title. The, the, the idea was we've been dreaming of this for so long. This is the train of our dreams. Uh, and now we finally have it. Um, so that's a quick history of trains. Uh, uh, regarding why study the bullet train as a cult cultural object, uh, the specific answer to that question is, well, that was my question about the train, right? Why were people so excited about a train? Meaning, what did it mean to them? Uh, obviously, I found that it meant different things to different people, and I, I expect we'll, we'll talk about some of those meanings. Um, but in a more general answer to the question, why study infrastructures, these kind of high tech infrastructures, it has to do with both the implicit and explicit promise that comes with that kind of big infrastructural project. Um, infrastructures have kind of an, an emotional force. People get excited about them. Uh, they get trepidatious about what they're going to mean for their lives, uh, positive or negative. Infrastructures and, and, and technological objects both have a power to enchant people because they capture the imagination. And that means that they have a usefulness and an impact beyond their intended technical use of just carrying people or things or information or what have you back and forth. Um, so viewing an infrastructure as a cultural object helps us think about those other uses and that gives us some insights into their particular time and place, which in this case is 1960s Japan. So this is a book about the bullet train on the surface, but it's really a book about the society and culture of 1960s Japan. Um, on the question of uh, pitfalls and dangers, I guess the thing that uh, the main thing that comes to mind is the risk of studying a technical a technological object in Japan makes some people suspicious and, and concerned that you might be ultimately reinforcing techno-orientalist views. Um, and so I dealt with that problem head on just to make it clear that I understand the problems of studying Japan in terms of a technological object. Um, <clears throat> but I have to explain, this was... This was the image that certain people in, in and institutions in Japan were selling. So in order to understand 1960s Japan as people were understanding it at the time, you have to talk about that, right? But at the same time, you want to be very careful not to repeat that problem in trying to analyze it. So that was the pitfall, the potential danger. And I just tried to deal with it by, by really being very conscious of it throughout yeah, and it, it struck me that that was a, a it's a difficult balance to strike, um, but that because you're looking at the Shinkansen at the 
the Super Express as a cultural object. You, you have to get into the very specific uh, context of what are people thinking about the, the bullet train at the time. Um, so one of the things, uh, one of the other things that really struck me about the book, and this gets us into the chapters, um, and, and I'm actually sort of curious whether this is, a, a, I guess, a, a structural artifact in a sense of um, doing something about mobility, um, is that over the course of the five chapters, um, you seek answers to all these questions we've been sort of talking about by sort of taking us on a journey, right? Working consecutively outward from Kyoto uh, all the way out to the world in these five chapters, right? And this sort of spatial arrangement of the book struck me as the kind of thing that you probably maybe even didn't plan at the beginning, but some, at some point no, it must have struck you. Okay, okay, you did, okay. Yeah, so, um, and you're trying to understand, as you put it, and I thought this was really, you know, nicely put, the dreams and nightmares of the bullet train, right? And so this first chapter, um, which is Invisible Infrastructures of Protest in Kyoto, dives into some fascinating archival material to unearth contestation um, by Kyoto of the bullet train's uh, planned initial route, right? Uh, so we have a struggle hidden by the sort of broadly accepted triumphalist history promoted by Japan National Railways, uh, JNR. Um, and, and this becomes the sort of public imaginary and the public memory of the Shinkansen. So you write that the process to ensure that the bullet train runs through Tokyo involved three groups of people. Uh, and that they have occasionally overlapping interests, uh, and here I'm quoting you, but differing and sometimes conflicting priorities. And importantly, very uneven access to the levers of power. So can you tell us who these three groups were, what their agendas were, and then how, how was the matter of running the Shinkansen through Tokyo, excuse me, Kyoto ultimately resolved? What effects did this have on the city, uh, especially in, contra in contrast to the communities that end up, and here's the nightmare, being bulldozed to make this rerouting happen? Um, yeah, so the three groups um, uh, were JNR, local administration, and um, yeah, those people who were, who were suffering uh, uh, under the, the project. Um, so the most powerful group was certainly Japanese National Railways. Um, they had diet approval to build the project. They had the budget to do it. They had the technological knowledge of what was possible and what was not possible. Um, and most importantly, they had the final decision-making power uh, to decide where tracks were going to go and how they were going to be built. Um, their priorities were speed, safety, and costs. They wanted to go as fast as they possibly could while remaining safe and keeping the construction and operating costs as low as possible. And all of those considerations pointed toward the straightest possible line between Tokyo and Osaka um, and the fewest possible stops. And so that set of considerations works against having a stop in Kyoto. And that's why initially they made a plan for the train to go nonstop between Nagoya and Osaka and just pass right by Kyoto, quite, quite far to the south. Uh, but their other priority was, of course, they needed passengers, right, um, in order to make the line profitable and useful at all. There had to be people on it. Uh, and that meant they had to think about convenience for travelers. So tourism was a really big uh, consideration. And that, of course, pushes for a Kyoto stop because a lot of people want to go to Kyoto for tourism. Um, so that was the that was uh, uh, JNR's main 
considerations. Um, another strong group was the local administration in Kyoto. Um, mainly, I looked at the city and prefectural assemblies. Their main goal was just to bring the bullet train through Kyoto. And then if they could do that, they kind of had a secondary set of uh, priorities, which was to make sure that the Super Express stopped there, not just the low, slower bullet train, but the fastest uh, one, um, that it would uh, the station would be built alongside the existing Kyoto station, and that all bullet train tracks and existing mainline uh, trunkline tracks would uh, be elevated throughout the city. Um, they didn't get that last one. <laughs> the the trunk line, the existing trunk line, was not elevated at the time. Um, so they wanted this not just for their economic benefit of the city. Of course, they they were thinking about economic factors, but the main priority for them was an ongoing project of city building. They wanted to remake Kyoto at, into what they called an international culture tourism city. Um, and so they argued that the bullet train, they argued to JNR and to anyone else who would listen, that the bullet train should come to Kyoto because Kyoto was this international culture tourism city and therefore a representative city of Japan and, and foreigners were going to want to come and look at it. Um, but they also really felt that the city needed the bullet train in order to become an international culture tourism city. So it was this kind of circular logic that they were going on. Uh, the least powerful group um, and also the most amorphous and kind of hard to define and locate group um, was the people who were in danger of being evicted or who were going to have to live alongside the new tracks. That group was hard to find because they, for the most part, didn't write down their experiences, or if they did, those writings were not preserved in any place that I could find. So it was also kind of a fun thing to research because I got to a little bit of creative uh, efforts to find what in the world they thought about uh, 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 the bullet train. Um, so from what I could find, uh, this group joined the debate quite late. Uh, part of their weakness is their lack of information. So they just had no idea that this was going to be happening uh, until it was already more or less a done deal. And the only thing to decide was exactly where the tracks were. Uh, and they found out that this was happening when JNR started having conversations with them to kind of figure out, to explain to them, okay, this is the, this is what's happening in your neighborhood. At that point, stopping the project was not an option, right? So that was so there were some petitions saying, hey, no bullet train, but mostly uh, the more realistic goals of uh, uh, petitions and protests by this group were just fair compensation for the land that they were losing uh, or the business space that they were losing um, or assistance with new housing. In a few cases, they also wanted to get JNR to move the tracks ever so slightly this way or that way. Uh, but... Um, no one realistically said, okay, let's let's not have the bullet train. It was going to happen. Um, the hard thing for this group was that they found that the democratic system really was not working for them, in part because the administration of Kyoto was so desperate for that super express stop. So they didn't really want to push JNR too hard to help these groups of people who were suffering. Um, so those communities had to find other ways to get their voices heard, to um, make their interests uh, understood and satisfied. Um, and so they engaged in um, 
uh, activities like uh, just sending a lot of petitions uh, uh, to the city assembly, the prefectural assembly. Um, they engaged in some sit-ins and these kinds of uh, extra um, parliamentary uh, 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 activities did have some success um, in various cases, which you know, get into a little bit in the book. Ultimately, um, the local government, of course, won. Right. Anyone who's ridden on the bullet train between uh, Nagoya and Osaka has probably noticed they stopped in Kyoto uh, and they stopped right alongside the, the existing Kyoto station. Um, so they won uh, their battle. And the result is that the route has really become naturalized. You know, y- 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 of course, it seems to us the bullet train would stop in Kyoto. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, locals also did win in a way. Uh, they got some help with finding housing. They got some uh, a better compensation than they originally were going to get. Um, but more importantly, they developed new methods of engaging in decision making about urban planning on a local level, and that also contributed to the rise of these kind of local issue oriented protests that became so prominent in in the 1970s. Yeah, I thought that the uh, the point you make about the sort of circular logic of well, Kyoto is an international tourist city, so of course it has to come through Kyoto in order to become a international tourist <laughs> city. Is, was was really the um, you know an eye opening uh, part of the story? And I actually I have to say though, I, as as a, a sort of cynic about these kinds of projects, I was somewhat. Um, pleasantly surprised, I guess, by the relatively smaller level of uh, destruction and disenfranchisement of people's lives in order to make that project happen that you describe. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, relatively uh, uh, some, some not, not benevolent, certainly, but there was, a, you know, there, there does seem to have been some consideration of these local interests and they weren't even on Twitter, right? I mean, so you know, <laughs> the, the fact that they got their voices heard is just, you know, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, I think the Twitter, it, it, Twitter, et cetera, is a big part of the the change um, in the way these things work, and you can see that with the the Maglev project today. Um, that it seems to be. Oh gosh, I was going to say it seems that it's been derailed, but I'm, I try to avoid such puns. Um, it, I see what you did it's there. It's running yes. into a wall, right, with the kind of protests in Shizuoka. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. We've talked about Kyoto now, uh, and we've in, in sort of uncovered the, the sort of strange history of how Kyoto and the, the rail uh, developed together, um, which you know, I think it's a sort of interesting hidden history. Um, and from here, we're going to sort of zoom out to the whole Tokaido region, that uh, giant, what is now a, me- a single sort of megalopolis stretching all the way from Tokyo in the east to Osaka in the west. Um, and this is what you do in chapter two, reconstructing the Tokaido. So you're arguing in this chapter, if I understand correctly, that uh, the bullet train, which is running east-west through this region, had greater effects on the spatial imaginary than it did actually on the physical landscape. Um, and I think this is kind of a counterintuitive argument, so I found it really interesting. Um, but you're, what you're saying, if I, if I understand, is that it changed mobility patterns, certainly, but with relatively minor deviations... The, the Shinkansen ran more or less along these sort of centuries-old routes, altering the speed and, I guess, the sort of magnitude of movement more than the direction, more than the flow, more than the actual sort of shape of that movement. Uh, in particular, the introduction of the bullet train seems to have profoundly affected thinking around urban planning and development in Tokyo. So 
I want to know, would it be fair to say that, in other words, the opening of the real lines um, is the beginning of uh, sort of opening up new ways of seeing and imagining the Tokaido and its cities, and the more or less stable, unchanging infrastructure of the Shinkansen is anchoring and driving this subsequent rethinking of space. Um, I guess at the risk of oversimplifying, was this a matter of the dynamic between top-down planning by scholars, engineers, bureaucrats and politicians who are bringing the train to life and this sort of bottom-up interpretation uh, by passengers, train aficionados, pop culture creators and consumers who are sort of using uh, the train once it's built. Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say. That's that's spot on. Um, and I, I should emphasize that this is not something that's new with the bullet train. Uh, it's often said, speed shrinks space, right? So as as faster infrastructure is developed, uh, distant spaces come to feel closer to people. Um, and that's something that's been said about trains from the era of, of steam. Um, but in addition to kind of making uh, distant cities feel closer together, uh, transportation infrastructures also reshape cities themselves. And that happened in different ways in the various cities of the Tokaido. So in Tokyo, for instance, uh, the bullet train um, didn't begin, but sort of uh, uh, de- further developed and, and expanded a process of uh, creating a layered city, right, with um, things go- happening not only on ground level, but also above the ground and below the ground uh, to a great extent. Um, it also transformed agricultural spaces into urban spaces by reshaping sit- the, the, the contours of cities, right, uh, uh, where, for instance, um, in Yokohama and in Osaka, where new stations were built outside of a city center, a new sub-center was created as businesses and, and residents kind of moved out to this, to this, around this new station. Um, so that's the impact on urban space of the technical functions of the railroad. But in addition to that, you have to think about the, the impact on space of the aesthetic function, that, that emotional power that I was talking about earlier, that, that the power to enchant. Um, and as you pointed out, people started to see and use the space of the bullet train in new ways. And there were a lot of different uh, factors um, contributing to that. Uh, uh, JNR um mentioned earlier, promoted this triumphant narrative that that the bullet train is a symbol of the technological prowess of Japan, the national culture of hard work and diligence. Um, Yeah, a lot of people pushed against that narrative, um, especially in popular culture. So you get that, um, you you kind of talked about this dynamic between the top-down effort and the bottom-up effort. You know, I don't know that it's it's not exactly grassroots if you talk about the people pushing against it. These are people, you know, filmmakers and <laughs> successful novelists and stuff. They're they're also powerful people, but they're not JNR, right? So they're they're not promoting that JNR narrative, but really pushing quite hard against it, um, especially in popular culture. Um, so uh, the bullet train was a star or a location in various stories showing the the sort of 
ugly underbelly of that beautiful JNR narrative of the bullet train, uh, stories of p- political manipulation uh, by powerful people to get the less informed uh, people who are going to be in the way of the bullet train to get them to go along. Um, stories of bribery, extortion, even murder. Uh, that last one is not a true story, I want to emphasize. <laughs> but some of these were based on true stories. Um, uh, so that the bullet train in this sense became, to some extent, a symbol of the problems with that single-minded focus on economic growth and industrial development that a lot of popular culture was criticizing at the time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Yeah, I thought that was um, particularly interesting because, you know, as you've already pointed out, it, it comes simultaneously to the first Tokyo Olympics, well, the first one that actually happened um, in, in, in 64. Um, and there is, you know, also that same kind of uh, pushback uh, against the excesses of de- developmentalism and, you know, pushing people off the land. And it's, it seems like it's part of that same current of, yeah, we'd really like to have nice, shiny things, but at the same time, could you please not destroy our livelihoods yeah, and our communities exactly. and, and all in order to do that? Um, and, and so that, that, you know, it's, it's it's really part of a, a kind of zeitgeist of that mid '60s that you have this clash. Um, but ultimately, you know, and I was thinking about this after reading the book. Um, I really, uh, you know, spending time in Japan in the you know, late '90s, early 2000s. I forget exactly when it was that I saw you know NHK's Project X version uh-huh. of this. This sort of you know, uh, and it's and it, and it really is that triumphalist narrative that has for lack of a better word, triumphed, it really has sort of conquered the public imagination mm-hmm. of that period. I think the same is true for the Olympics, of course, by the way. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and so it was, it was fascinating to sort of think about, you know, what are the processes that allowed that to happen? Because there is this very contested um, history uh, that you have here in chapter two, uh, especially. And then we get to chapter three, um, which is Railroad for the Information Society. And I have to say, um, this came very much out of left field for me, or it, well, to be fair, it would have if I hadn't read the article beforehand. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, 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 signed the, I signed the article for a graduate seminar, so I was somewhat more prepared, but nevertheless. Um, so the idea of Railroad for the Information Society, just the, I mean, the chapter name already is very suggestive, but let me, let me try and break it down here a little bit before I ask the questions, right? So you're presenting a vision of the Shinkansen that, um, you know, I had, like like I said, I really never considered before. Um, you're writing that, quote, Japan's transformation into an information society made planners re-envision rail from a carrier of goods to a carrier of 
information, putting high-speed rail on the cutting edge of this newly dawning information society. And so I guess this is also part of that mid-60s zeitgeist of the economic and social trans, sort of transition transformation that we're talking about. Um, in other words, the Shinkansen is in and of itself a, a kind of information technology, right, in this vision. So, okay, so I have two questions about this. Um, uh, first, I'd love if you could unpack exactly how the train is understood to actually be part of an information society and, and who's got this idea. So second, what's the um, cause-effect relationship, right? So how, how is this cause-effect relationship between the bullet train and information society imagined? Um, so in your first two chapters, right, you show that the Super Express is changing the speed and volume of the flows of people and information um, through the Tokaido megalopolis. Um, and, and I guess that what I mean by that is to put my question differently, were these increased flows of people and ideas seen as sort of causes or symptoms of the nascent information society, or is there something else going on here altogether? Uh, yeah, I also found it a little hard to get my head around this topic at first. We're so used to digital communication. It's so easy for someone in uh, Norway, for instance, to have a long chat with someone in a small town in the middle of Pennsylvania. Uh, how can a train be part of that, um, especially in central Pennsylvania, where we have no railway at all? <laughs> um, but in the 1960s and into the 1970s, uh, telecommunications in Japan were really not that well developed. Um, they were in the process of being developed and, and people felt that it were, at least the people who wrote about it argued that people felt that it was necessary to meet face to face in order to really get anything done. Um, you can't just talk about things off uh, over the phone. You have to look your business partner in the eye or what have you. That means if you're in Tokyo, you need to go to Osaka if you're you know, and the reverse. Um, uh, and so the speed of the bullet train made those trips much easier because you could go between those two main cities of Japan in a day trip. You didn't have to stay overnight in a hotel. You could leave in the morning, get your business done, have a few hours of, of meeting um, and, and get on the train home uh, that evening. Um, and so in that sense, it was seen as accelerating the exchange of information. Um, it didn't take a two-day trip. It took a, a one-day out. Um, so that was one aspect, that, that information that couldn't be exchanged over the phone was getting spe speeded up. Uh, but there were also two other aspects that, that made people see the bullet train as part of, uh, as an information um, infrastructure. One was that there was a decision very early on before it was actually completed uh, that it would not carry freight. Initially, they thought it would carry freight at night and then for various uh, uh, um, practical reasons, they said, okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to have freight at all. Um, and so not carrying freight meant all it was carrying was information in the, in the sort of thinking of the time where what is a, what is a person? It's a it's a package of information <laughs> in the brain. Um, even if you're not going on a, a business trip on the bullet train, even if you're going uh, for a tourist trip to Kyoto, you're bringing back with you all those images of the gardens and temples, right? And so people say, well, that too is information. Um, so the, the, the fact that it was passengers only made it seem more uh, part of the information infrastructure category. Um, 
And then finally, uh, the computerized operations of the train really helped. And that expanded over the course of the first decade or so. And this, this is the chapter that probably goes farthest into the future of the bullet train uh, from 1964 gets into the mid 1970s. Uh, and by the early 1970s, people really were thinking more about computerized information. And at that point, um, the bullet train had a, a, a more elaborate computerized uh, operating system. Um, and so it was seen as part of the information society in that sense, not that it was carrying information, but that it was relying on electronic information for its very operation. Um, but again, the bullet train was a symbol here. So it's not just about the actual, uh, what the train is actually carrying um, uh, or how it is operating, but people started to see this change happening in the Japanese economy and um, the growing role of what was being identified as the information industry. And that change whether you agree with the idea about the rising information society or not that's what they were calling it um, and that change came with significant social changes uh, and so government planners and intellectuals alike were really grappling with that and trying to explain it trying to explain what was happening in Japan's society and economy the bullet train was in some ways a familiar technology it's a railway right everybody knows what a railway is uh, they're familiar with that but it had some differences that made it fit with the information society. So it was a useful tool for understanding those changes. If you have no idea what the information society is, the bullet train can be used as, a, as an example to explain that. So the people who saw the bullet train as part of the information society, it's a really amorphous group. It's, it's, it's those who were trying to explain those socioeconomic changes happening around them in the 1960s and into the 1970s. So that included... Uh, not only urban planners in the government, um, but also anyone grappling with these ideas in academia, um, sociologists, uh, uh, architects, uh, urban planners in, in various um, parts of the government um, and academia. Um, but at the same time, here we get that same kind of contested ideas from government people and outside of the government um, People who wanted to critique those changes also used the bullet train as a symbol for the continued inequalities within this new system. So if the government was saying, oh, the information society is going to be wonderful for democracy and everybody's going to have equal access to information and opportunity, uh, there were a lot of people who were saying, uh, no, <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> um, so, for example, uh, there's a 1975 action film called Shinkansen Dai Bakuha, which I really wanted to translate as big blast on the bullet train. But um, unfortunately, the actual American release was just called Bullet Train. So I went with that very important That's very title instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, but that film centers on a so-called information crime uh, being committed out of desperation by somebody who lost their business due to these shifts in the economy. Uh, and... Um, eventually tries to extort a huge amount of money from JNR, uh, which is, he, he blames them for his business failure uh, by creating a new kind of piece of information that only he has and JNR will be willing to pay for it. Uh, and I won't, don't want to give away too much of the movie, but it involves threatening to blow up a speeding bullet train with a bomb that will go off 
if the train falls below a certain speed. If you've seen the uh, Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves movie Speed, you you it's the same movie on a bus. Uh, this one's on a bullet train. Um, so uh, clearly this one came first. Um, uh, so the the film is about this crime, but it's also about JNR's efforts to both solve the crime and avoid disaster, all using the latest telecommunications. So you see in the film the computerized tracking of trains um, from the headquarters. They control can control where every train is, get the trains off of the track so this one train can go through without slowing down. They're using incredibly high-tech fax machines, right? <laughs> you know, it's at the time the latest technology. Um, and and on phone train on on train phones, so the headquarters can talk to the the operator of the train. People on the train are are trying to all call home when they realize that things are are not going well. Um, so that's an example of the kind of popular culture product really pushing back against this idea of the the sunny, beautiful outcome of an information society. Saying no, there are also people who are really being caused tremendous pain and the inequalities of society are not going away because of this new information society. Yeah, I was I was reminded of the kind of um, I guess you call it sort of sneaker net um, you know idea of you know before before the internet it was you 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 physically <laughs> took the information yeah. right and it, it it sort of seemed like that version of the information society right, right at the sort right. of beginnings of this um, but at a certain point it becomes you know that sometimes uh, we we scoff at the idea of you know the the uh, older politicians who refer to the internet as a series of tubes we jokingly talk about the intertubes <laughs> and so on and so forth but. You know, it seems to me it's part of that same evolution of yes. a physical information infrastructure. Um, and we can see it in these cultural artifacts of, you know, the sneaker net and the intertubes um, and seeing the Shinkansen in some way along that trajectory for me was actually quite sort of useful in thinking about um, like how in sort of getting wrapping my head around what it might have meant to to see the Shinkansen as part of an information society. I guess the other thing, and I, you know, for, for both you and for our listeners, if you'll forgive me a personal anecdote, when I was um, working as a translator in the early 2000s uh, at the North, what was then the North end of the, the bullet train in Morioka, um, we would, uh, for large uh, files, large data files that could not be uh, sent back and forth over the internet at the time, or it was, you know, time, time concern or whatever, there was a, you could send uh, the, the physical printouts by Shinkansen. Um, <laughs> and it was the Shinkansen bin and you, and it was outrageously expensive, you know, over a hundred us dollars, you know, one way. Um, and there were companies that were willing to do that because that was still the best way to transport large amounts of information. And we're talking in the early 2000s. I should also say I had to fax two things to Japan this week. So, you know, <laughs> uh, Japan's love affair with the fax machine. It, 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 it really does live on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, all, all that aside, uh, we're actually going to take a step back uh, to something even older than the fax machine, which is Imperial Japan. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, chapter four, which is nostalgia for Imperial Japan. Uh, and near the end of this chapter, you write that progress often evokes nostalgia, which I think is absolutely on point, right? And um, as we've discussed in the previous chapter, the Shinkansen is sort of pushing Japan forward in many ways. And it's incorporated into these futurist visions of the information society and the nation. Um, at the same time, as you show it here in chapter four, it's also wrapped up in a sort of struggle to come to terms with the imperial past. And that's because the post-war Super Express is part of a 
nostalgic progress narrative, um, which you've hinted at uh, early on in, in the podcast, but that connects it to uh, the South Manchuria Railroad, SMR, or Bantetsu, um, that company's luxurious Asia Express, and also the original planned and abandoned bullet train, which was supposed to connect uh, Tokyo all the way down to Shimonoseki in the far southwest. Um, So how was the Shinkansen um, connected to these two trains in sort of public memory and narrative? And how did these narratives mitigate, as you put it, against the possibility of Japanese society coming to terms with the violence and oppression of its imperial past? Uh, and, and, and how does it, and I guess sort of typically, elide imperial violence and spotlight, uh, sort of, uh, avoid spotlighting the hardships and accomplishments of quote unquote Japanese? Um. Yeah, I wasn't planning to write about wartime when I started this project, but these two trains came up so often in the materials from the 1960s that I I had to bring that in just to figure out why. Um, The Asia Express and the original bullet train figured in nostalgia for for the wartime years in different ways. Um, The Asia Express was, uh, for many people in the 1960s, a reminder of Japanese greatness, Um, this very powerful and luxurious train that, uh, as they kept saying, was on a par with European and American trains, uh, uh, much nicer than anything that was existing in Japan at the time, in the the, um, home islands. Um, So people who reminisced about it in the 1960s really quite effectively erased the violence of empire in their materials by focusing very tightly on the train itself and the Japanese people who built and ran the line. Um, They also tended to echo wartime propaganda about the train. So mostly the people reminiscing about the Asia Express in the 1960s were people who had worked for the South Mediterranean Railway. Um, And so they had a very, very particular kind of memory about it. their experience of it, right? We built this thing so fast, we worked so hard, uh, and that was the the propaganda of the time. And so, of course, that's what they had to say about it in the 1960s. Um, This approach allowed people who were reading their stories or or seeing them on on TV to look back with, with pride at Japan's rule in Manchuria without necessarily feeling guilt, because those aspects were just not being brought forward front and center in those materials. So they could say, oh, look at this wonderful thing we did. Um, the original bullet train, uh, when people talked about that, there was sort of a similar approach, but with a different focus. Uh, there was no actual train, right? That line was never built. Um, so reminiscences about it uh, instead talked about the plans and the construction. So you get a close-up view of the Japanese people who sacrificed and suffered to contribute to the prosperity being enjoyed by those who were consuming the reminiscences in the 1960s, right? So it did the same thing of kind of ignoring why were those people having to sacrifice and suffer, really not talking about all the suffering of, of, of others outside of Japan, uh, but thinking about their own suffering um, by people who, who really remember, remembered that in the 1960s, right? And, and, Making giving them a chance to remember it, but feel proud about it because it was connecting directly to this 
great success of post-war Japan, right? And this symbol of Japan's economic uh, recovery of the bullet train. Um, so uh, both both kind of focusing in close on a train in order to kind of ignore the, everything that was going on around them. Yeah, and, and you come uh, again to the subject of historical memory uh, from a different perspective in Chapter 5, uh, which is called Technology of Cultural Diplomacy. Um, and here, you know, Japan is not just the subject, but also the object of war memory, right? And this comes into play when Japan tries to take the uh, bullet train uh, to the world as a sort of, you know, tool of technology. Of, cultural diplomacy, to leverage that technological achievement um, in cultural diplomacy. Uh, you observe that because technology was closely linked to both military potential and economic power, the Super Express was initially a symbol of Japan as a potential military and economic threat as much as it was a sort of an accomplishment to be celebrated around the world. Um, and in this chapter, by, by the way, that, that reminds me very much of sort of JAL's, uh, the Japan's flagship carrier trying to rehabilitate itself, you know, after the war. Yes. Um, you know, uh, Nakano Yoshiko wrote about this, the sort of mm-hmm. problem of, well, you know, Japanese pilots were not exactly associated with safe air travel. Um, <laughs> and, and this was a sort of thing that had to be overcome. Right? Right, I, think, I think this exactly. is the, the same sort of conundrum that you're pointing to here. Right? And in this chapter, you argue that the, the use of the bullet train as a diplomatic tool um, demonstrates the problems and pitfalls of Japan's showcasing technological accomplishments and capabilities as a diplomatic strategy. And I thought this was really nicely encapsulated in the opening of the chapter, which uh, presages the cultural and economic power of Japan in, in the coming decades, and also the increased friction it would create with the U.S. especially. Um, and also in figure five, which is a Hitachi advertisement from the 19th 1964 World's Fair in New York, uh, which, as you've said, is part of how you sort of came to the book. So I think it's a nice place also for us to think about um, wrapping things up. So I wonder if we could get to that at the end of the chapter. Yeah. um, So, you know, I want to emphasize thinking about the uh, connection to military potential. It's, It's not the case that American leaders were literally afraid of Japan militarily at this point. That said, (laughs) the State Department was at the time making reports showing how quickly Japan could develop nuclear missiles and reminding the American political leadership that there's no guarantee that the country won't ever slide back into militarism, right? So Japan is a strong American ally. And in fact, the American government is really pushing Japan to contribute more to their mutual defense. So uh, it's kind of like, yes, um, but maybe we can come up with a different way that they can contribute and not have them build missiles, right? And not have them um, be part of that. uh, And they certainly did. It it went against the idea of uh, nuclear non-proliferation to to imagine Japan as a nuclear power. So we think of uh, Japan's economic challenge as coming a bit later, Um, but in the electronics industry, especially at this time, they're complaining about Japanese competition and calling for protection. So both of these ideas of a a military threat and economic threat, they're not really front and center, but you can see them bubbling up at this moment. And so that's what I wanted to think about in terms of the, the bullet train a bullet train, a train is not scary. Right? It's going to stay there on its tracks in Japan, right? But it, it's, again, the bullet train as a symbol of these things that could happen and actually in technology are 
happening in some industries. Uh, so at events like the New York World's Fair, exhibitors wanted to show off Japan's best industry and technology, right? That's one of the things a World's Fair is for. But at the same time, there's this potential for backlash that uh, uh, Japan's pavilion organizers didn't really anticipate. Um, so for instance, they had these displays of rockets and there was a sign next to it that said rockets for peaceful use. But I guess, you know, maybe not everyone saw that sign because they looked at it and said, yikes, uh, you know, there are reports of people saying, what's with the scary rockets? Uh, are these missiles? Uh, is this a Soviet uh, exhibit? <laughs> Confused. Why are there rockets here? Um, and so uh, in the in the sort of break between um, two seasons of the World's Fair, they said, OK, let's move the rockets out away from the entrance to the back where maybe people won't notice them. Um, yeah, I love that Hitachi ad. I was really glad I was able to include that um, in the book uh, because it it really captures a lot of what's going on. One of the things I love is that Hitachi uh, kind of claims the bullet train for themselves, right? They say, oh, in Hitachi's Super Express, uh, oh, Hitachi's, right? <laughs> That's one of many com companies that contributed parts. Um, but also in the emphasis of speed, the, tr the train itself in that picture, you can't even really see it. It's this blur, right? So it's, it's going so fast, we can't even capture it in, on, on camera. Um, but what you don't see in this ad is the other challenge for exhibitors, which was that organizers said explicitly, we are trying to change what they called the Fujiyama Geisha image of Japan. Uh, and yeah, that's, they, they wrote out that word in, in Katakana Fujiyama, right? Like that's what they were talking about. Um, uh, they didn't mind actual images of Mount Fuji. Um, it was sort of that stereotypical image of Japan um, that they gave that label that they were against. Uh, so they're trying to change that. So they want to do the opposite of that. However, that's what many Americans wanted to see. So a lot of Americans complained, oh, we didn't get the kind of typical, uh, uh, they, they called it the oriental uh, image uh, culture of Japan. And, and that's what they wanted. They wanted that typical Japanese culture. And so again, in that interim, um, they added a number of elements that they thought would, would be that typical Japanese culture to attract visitors, right? And so adding that in, emphasizing that really ended up ultimately kind of reinforcing that um, Fujiyama Geisha image alongside the presentation of these very high tech things, not, not only the bullet train, but um, uh, the largest ship in the world and um, computers, right? They had computers there, uh, high speed cameras, all sorts of um, high tech materials. And that brings us back to the question of techno-orientalism because these guys were really trying to present Japan as a tech nation. They were trying, they were, they were giving the country the identity very purposefully, get, trying to give the country the identity of being the home of the future, but also in order to attract American attention, in order to contract, uh, attract consumers, they also wrapped it up in these cherry blossoms and pretty girls in kimono. So they themselves were very much complicit in creating that image abroad while they were trying to combat it, right? So kind of undercutting their own intentions there. 
Yeah, and I, I, I was definitely thinking about the, I, maybe it's a little, little bit less these days, but the sort of fascination with, uh, you know, uh, Japanese women in kimono or yukata or whatever, where uh, using a smartphone, you know, or whatever yeah. you flip yeah. phone twenty years ago, yeah. right? It's that same kind of exactly. problem that that does not seem to go away for no. Japan yeah, at all. Um, yeah, so I, I thought this again. This this sort of Hitachi ad is a really interesting place to wrap up because it's all about you know the uh, the way that narrative comes uh, to the world, right, um, and the sort of ways it gets pushed back, which are actually quite different, right, than the kinds of problems you're describing uh, at home. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but I do want to uh, ask you. So now your book is out. And what's next? What do you have on your plate? What are you thinking about? Uh, and in other words, when can we have you back on the podcast again? <laughs> well, next week, Noam. Um, uh, so uh, I have been starting a new project um, that began with uh, the the very practical fact of not being able to get to Japan. Um, and so I realized or I remembered that um, I had a treasure trove of materials on my computer that I had collected uh, while I was working on the bullet train project. I went to the Gordon E. Prang collection at the University of Maryland College Park, thinking that I was going to have a chapter on the occupation period in this book. And I ultimately decided that that chapter didn't fit into this book very well. Uh, so I just set all those materials that I had collected aside. Um, and I thought, all right, now's my chance. I'm going to just read through these carefully. Um, and so I, I started doing that and I was very surprised to find, well, this was a, this was sort of a, um, mishmash of materials because it was, I, the people at the Prang are so great. I just told them I'm interested in railways and they kind of brought out to me, pile by pile, everything they had uh, uh, indexed under transportation rail. So it was all kinds of things, um, kind of uh, uh, official um, educational materials for railway men, uh, uh, more technical um, materials uh, that were sort of uh, by JNR, um, uh, labor writings, um, all, all sorts of things. Uh, and so I just started reading through those and I was surprised to find that in a lot of the sort of explanations around the really technical uh, materials, there was a, an introduction saying, okay, you got to learn this stuff and, and operate a really good railroad because it's an essential part of building a new democratic Japan. Uh, the railway is incredibly important to democracy. And to me, I, I certainly expect a railway representative to talk about railways in terms of rebuilding the Japanese economy, right? Of course you need, that's why they built railways in the first place, right? To, to build this new kind of economy. Um, so if we're going to rebuild the economy, we need to have railways to transport stuff. I did not expect them to say, this is what we need to build democracy in Japan. Um, and of course, as soon as I noticed it, I started seeing it everywhere and almost everything I opened, uh, including some of the educational materials, you know, so I don't, I haven't really thought about 
the impact on the post-war of the fact that towards the end of the war, nobody was actually going to school, right? I mean, they were using schools as factories. Kids were going off and building uh, airstrips or, or air, uh, balloon bombs to go to the U.S. or what have you. Um, and so there's a whole generation of people who still needed basic education. And so those who went to the railway had these correspondence courses that they could take. And part of the correspondence course was to teach you what democracy was. So what they're, they're teaching, they're learning about democracy with the inflection of what do people who work on the railway need to know about democracy, right? So it's kind of this connecting ideas of democracy and, and the railway, which um, is just fascinating to me that two things that I, it didn't occur to me would go together. So I wanted to know what does it mean for the development of democracy in Japan that this is how it's happening, right? Of course, it's happening in schools. Of course, it's happening in the various ways that we've seen um, people talking about education uh, describe, and people have talked a lot about the way it happens in the constitution. Uh, but just because you write a constitution doesn't mean everyone who's already out of school knows how to do it. So how did that happen? Uh, and the railways, it turns out, are, are one of those ways. Uh, and I think the railways are an interesting example because they touch almost everybody's lives. Even if you don't work for the railway, chances are you might ride one sometimes. Um, and there were also efforts, uh, discussions about how you, you make the railway operation democratic, right? So it's affecting passengers as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm working on a, a project about the impact of railway reconstruction on democracy in occupation period Japan, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, that's it's such an interesting project in part because, of course, there's intrinsic interest, but it's also in such interesting tension with the imperial nostalgia that you describe um, and with the, uh, you know, particularly with the Shinkansen, but also with the uh, the image of Japan as this potentially threatening techno technological superpower uh, and how. And I'd also, I'd love to see whether it's not just the railway that's doing this, right? Are other industries being like, I don't know, like we're essential to democracy too, right? I mean, it just <laughs> seems like there's such, such interesting directions that the project could go. Uh, so hopefully we'll uh, have you back uh, sometime soon uh, to talk about that. But in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Uh, and uh, yeah, good luck with that project. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, and I'll look forward to that, that next time when the next book comes out. <laughs> Excellent. Take care. You too.